you have your Bibles this morning, and of course I hope that you do, I invite you to join me in the book of Nehemiah. We, uh, this is week three of our time in Nehemiah, and so just by way of, well first of all I need to find it, there we go, I'll cheat, my ribbon's in there. By way of quick introduction, we started chapter two last week where uh, Nehemiah is uh, sent to Judah, not necessarily um, sent, more like uh, requested to go, and he, uh, he goes. He uh, is the cupbearer to the king, as we saw last week, uh, the king in Susa, uh, Artaxerxes, in his summer home, and uh, he is a cupbearer in a much trusted position, and he goes to the king, and he asks that he be allowed to go to Jerusalem for the city that he loves, the city of his God, the city where his grandfathers are buried. Um, the walls lie in ruins, and he wants to go and be a part of rebuilding that. And he's very nervous about it, but the king uh, allows that to be. And ultimately, we know he allows it to be because the king of kings and God's sovereignty, this is God's plan for, for Nehemiah to be a part of this rebuilding effort. And so, uh, so he sends him, and not just sends him by himself, but he sends him with letters of authority, uh, letters to get materials. And as we'll see this morning, um, that he goes as uh, in, a, in a political sense. And so this morning, uh, he, uh, he arrives in Jerusalem. And so this is where we're going to be as we finish chapter 2 in Nehemiah 2, 9 through 20. Let's go ahead and read our text, and then we'll back up and unpack it. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem and that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone, or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burn. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And, he said, and they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for this morning. We thank you for this time now that we can come into your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us through your word this morning as we look 
and Nehemiah's uh, life in this beginning of the rebuilding of the wall. Pray that you would keep me from error, Lord, and that Christ would be exalted. In his name we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to kind of look at this passage in three different ways or three different aspects of this passage. We're going to look at Nehemiah, how Nehemiah met opposition. We're also going to see how Nehemiah made some inspections and finally how Nehemiah gave instructions. So just to let you know where we're going, we're going to spend probably a good bit of our time on this first part of the opposition that Nehemiah met. And so we, we kind of got wind of this last week as we were introduced to those two individuals, Sanballat and Tobiah. Uh, and so now we're going to see them. They kind of meet him as Nehemiah shows up. Now, it's interesting as you look at kind of this transition, as Nehemiah goes from, uh, from Susa to Jerusalem, as he asks the king, uh, as he tells the king and the king grants him, uh, there is a clear parallel here to Ezra. Now, although it's a very similar situation, these two men handle their, tra- their transport, if you will, vastly different. So go meet to Ezra chapter 8, and just to be reminded of Ezra's uh, journey and how they look different. So when you go to Ezra 8, verses 21, it says this, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that they might humble our, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. And so if you remember, Ezra is taking not just him and some people, he's taking a whole bunch of stuff. He's taking a bunch of wealth and a bunch of all these, these different supplies, and he's journeying, this four-month journey, uh, to Jerusalem, similar to what lies before Nehemiah. But here's the difference. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So he fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And so even on the, the onset of this journey, we see a similarity and yet a significant difference in Ezra and Nehemiah. How Ezra uh, did not go back to the king to look for horsemen, but yet here is Nehemiah, who he's, that's how he is arriving. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So there's this difference. So how, how can this be different? You have these two prophets. You have these two spiritual leaders. You have these two men. Uh, one, have these two guys who have books after their own name. You got Ezra and Nehemiah. How can they have this very similar situation and yet uh, respond very differently, decide very differently, act very differently? Um, and just to kind of read you something I found very helpful, Ezra, having previously affirmed his trust in God's protection, did not request an armed escort in line with his role as a religious leader focused on Jewish law. Nehemiah, however, uh, coming directly from the Persian court as the appointed governor of Jerusalem, received military escort as a customary practice reflecting his higher official status and different responsibilities. These two men find themselves in different positions. Ezra, as a spiritual leader, going very specifically uh, to return people to the law of God or reinstitute the laws and commands of the Lord, where Nehemiah is going on an official capacity. And so both of them, it is reasonable to believe that both Ezra and Nehemiah made different decisions, but both done in faith. Ezra was acting in faith and said, if I go back to the king and ask for help, I'm not going to be doing so in faith. I'll be doing so out of fear because I need help making this journey. 
where Nehemiah, if he would have acted differently, he would have, not done, he would have done so not in faith. So the only way for him to respond in faith was exactly as he did by receiving the king's offer of going with the officers of the army and the horsemen. And so let us be reminded of that simple yet essential word that we often quote from uh, Paul in Romans 14, 23, that anything not done in faith is sin. And so it would have been sinful for Ezra to take the king's guard, and it would have been sinful for Nehemiah to refuse the king's guard. Both were trusting in the Lord for these decisions they had made in getting from where they were to Jerusalem. So it's possible that Nehemiah was met with some opposition, even internally. Hey, Ezra did this, Nehemiah, uh, but we're going with the king's guard. It's possible that he met with that kind of opposition. It's possible that he met opposition along the way. And just like we don't have details in Ezra's account, we don't have details in Nehemiah's account of all that happens on this two to four month journey. Although Nehemiah took a slightly different route to Jerusalem, it would have surely been full of bandits and nefarious individuals who would not have wanted good for his, uh, for his party. So it's possible they had opposition from the long journey, but for sure, Nehemiah was met with opposition when he got into town as soon as he arrived in Jerusalem uh, from Sanballat and Tobiah. We see this. And verse 10, but when Sanballat, the Hornonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased, displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. Now, this shows a different level of hatred. They weren't specifically against Nehemiah at this point because what their dis displeasure was, what their hatred was in, was that someone, anyone, would show up on behalf of the Jewish people. And so the core issue here is not against Nehemiah, but it's against the Israelites, that someone would dare come and seek their welfare. And so these two men... Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, this is where their opposition started, was in a hatred for the people of Israel, for the people of God. Now, this is nothing new for Israel, opposition. Israel knew opposition very well uh, in their past, in their present, in their future. And we can talk a lot about the opposition that has been countered by Israel uh, over the years. There's actually uh, the Hebrew word is sitna. It is uh, used for opposition or hostility. Whenever, uh, whenever we see this oftentimes in Scripture, this is the, the picture it's trying to, to paint. It's a picture of hostility or enmity, opposition. The word can be found in the New Testament, and it directly translates accusation or opposition. And so this is what uh, Nehemiah is met with when he shows up to Jerusalem. It's actually der derived from the root word, which means Satan or adversary, or opponent. And so we see this very clear picture of animosity, of enmity, of opposition. As it says here, displeasure. They are displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And we'll just kind of go and look at the book end of this because we see it grow a little bit from just two guys to three guys. In verse 19, but when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? 
So they meet them with opposition, and they can, this opposition continues, not just in chapter 2, but we're going to see it a lot in the coming chapters. This term, this, uh, this idea of opposition, it encapsulates the idea of strife and conflict, often in the context of unjust or hostile actions against the Jewish people. It reflects this recurring theme that we see all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the, the Jewish history. And the challenges they face, when they face when it comes to faith and perseverance. And so now Nehemiah is joining this, uh, this narrative. He is joining this opposition that the Jewish people know. Now Nehemiah knows this opposition as he is met with opposition. And those who oppose Nehemiah here, these are not just a couple guys off the street, right? These are significant men, Sanballat and Tobiah and even Geshem. These are men who are regional governors or leaders. And what they wanted was for, for Jerusalem to remain weak. They wanted the wall to remain in its crumbled condition because it would keep Jerusalem from becoming a stronger city and reduce their efforts in their cities. It would uh, diminish Jerusalem's influence over the other territories. They did not want to see Jerusalem do well. And not only... Uh, and who they were that, that made this opposition great, but in the area they inhabited. So we see that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, uh, these three men represented a kind of geographical shell around Jerusalem. Sanballat in uh, the north, Tobiah in the east, and Geshem in the southeast. So it surrounded Jerusalem. These three men, the opposition that Nehemiah faced as soon as he came to Jerusalem, he knew right off the bat this was going to be difficult. That yes, he had these letters from the king, he had this authority, he came as a governor, but when it came down to it, he met fierce opposition. He met fierce opposition. This wasn't just an issue of getting some hate mail from some guys who didn't like him or dirty looks from those who didn't agree with him. These men could make him getting the aid and the resources he needed very difficult. And so he, had, he met great opposition. And God's people have always met opposition and will always meet opposition, even all the way back to the garden. Go with me to Genesis real quick. A familiar passage, Genesis chapter 3. We come here fairly often and we, often, we usually look at just kind of the second half here. But I want us to see the first half of Genesis 3, 15. As we think about the opposition faced here. Not just by Nehemiah and Israel, but the opposition faced by God's people. So we know that the fall, Genesis 3, one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, as it points us to the, the fall of man, the, uh, the entry of sin into the world, and the broken nature that man will have. We'll just start there in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says in verse 15, I will put enmity, I will put opposition, I will put hostility, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this right here in verse, uh, in verse 15 is the heart of the gospel. That there's going to be this enmity, this hostility, but yet there is one who will come, who will end this hostility, who will end this reign of sin. 
And so this hostility goes back to the very beginning. And you can see this hostility and this opposition all through the Old Testament. It is nothing new for the people of God. And it's also found in the New Testament. Go with me to the book of John, the fourth gospel. John 15, verse 18. Some encouraging words from our Savior. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So here's this promise that this opposition continues for the people of God. Jesus said, here's a promise. You'll be persecuted. Here's your promise. You'll be hated because they hated me first. And if they hate me, they will definitely hate you. And that just has to be true, right? They hated Christ, the perfect son of God. How much more than will they hate us who walk in the light who aim to be as Christ and to live as Christ. The world will always hate God and all that is of the Lord. That is a truth. Opposition has uh, been there since the beginning and will be there until Christ ends it. Until He returns for His people and puts an end to sin. Light has no place with the darkness. So then, do not be surprised when the culture lashes out against truth or whenever you as an individual encounter hostility from the lost. Instead, let us look to the Lord and put our faith and hope in Him, as Nehemiah will do, as he will put his hope in the Lord. He does not back down from this opposition. So, Nehemiah meets opposition. Secondly, Nehemiah made an inspection. That may sound kind of... Uh, uh, like luster to you, but we see it twice in here. This word inspection. He makes an inspection of this wall. So he arrives in Jerusalem. He encounters uh, Sanballat and Tobiah. And then in verse 11, So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he wakes up. He's there for three days. Maybe it's because he's resting. He's been on this long journey. But he's there for a few days. And then after three days, he wakes up in the middle of the night. He takes a couple guys with him. And this is almost like a chapter out of a spy novel or a scene out of a movie. It's a really cool scene, if you were to ask my opinion, that what happens here when he gets up in the middle of the night and he takes his guys. He only takes one animal with him, one that he is riding. There was no animal with me but the one that I was on. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. They were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. So this is his whole point. He's going to come out in the middle of the night and the kind of the dead of night where he has uh, probably all kind of reasons why he's doing this as we'll get to. But he's inspecting the city. He's inspecting the walls and the gates. And it kind of gives us kind of a path that we can kind of make some sense of. But it's not just so we can have a, uh, a navigation of where he goes. But then he went to the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal uh, that was under, under me to pass. And so he comes across this rubble. He comes across this place that becomes difficult and he gets off. 
Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So no one knew where he was at. Not the Jewish people, not those uh, that were connected to uh, uh, to the Persian Empire here, none of these folks knew who, what he was doing or where he was at. He was inspecting the walls. So Nehemiah made this inspection. And so under the cover of darkness and unbeknownst to anyone, he slips out and he does this inspection. He inspects the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. So why was this needed? Couldn't Nehemiah just show up as a servant of the Lord and with uh, the, the letters he has from the king and just get to work? And he could just show up and on, after three days of rest, just say, okay, guys, let's get together. Here's a plan. So why was this nighttime kind of ninja inspection needed? Likely two reasons. First of which was this, that he wanted to see the damage. Maybe even feel it. Maybe even uh, not just see it from a construction point of view but just to walk through and see the damage if you remember in chapter one he was broken over the fact that the holy city of god was in disarray he was broken over this walls and not been rebuilt so he had this this emotion that flowed out of him for the city of god so he really wanted to see the damage to understand the damage the psalm that we read earlier this morning psalm 87 uh, verse 1 through 3 says this on the holy mount stands the city he founded the lord loves the gates of zion more than all the dwelling places of jacob glorious things of you are spoken O city of god I mean, so we, we even see this picture of how the lord loves the gates of his city so why are these gates so important just where you come in and go out right just get into the city there's nothing for us as westerners think too much about our gates the gates, a few things, they were where people gathered. These big gates of the city is where God's people would often gather in the middle of the day. It is a place that identified the strength of a city. If you had strong gates and strong walls, it pointed to a strong city, the city of God. And so a leader would want the city to be strengthened. He'd want to, 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 to be mindful of where the people gathered. It was also a place of entry. As you think about the city of God, how meaningful this was to be the point where people would enter into Jerusalem. So as he's walking around, as he's taking an assessment, an inspection, an examination, if you will, of these broken down, burned down walls, you can imagine what he was feeling as he walked through there. To see not just like destroyed walls, but even fire damaged walls. I don't know if you've ever walked through a structure that's been burned. Unfortunately, it's something I do fairly often in my line of work. It is just something different. But when fire has taken over a building, it's caused this damage. It's far more than just fixing some studs. You've got to tear things out, rip things down, and rebuild it. And this is what he sees. And we see this throughout the first couple chapters. Numerous times does it refer to the burned uh, walls of Jerusalem these walls damaged by fire so as he's doing his inspections as he's assessing the city walls you can only imagine his feelings as he's walking through there and it's this task that lies before him secondly and maybe a little more practically why was he making this inspection kind of for the most part by himself he has a few men with him but he's, he's told no one else is going out in the middle of the night why would he be doing this 
Nehemiah did not know how to build a wall. You ever thought about that? Nehemiah was not some civil engineer in the ancient Near East. He couldn't just show up and start giving orders to build a wall. He could, you know, part of us practically think he could because he has the materials, he has the authority, and he has God's favor on him. But what he doesn't have is the knowledge of how to rebuild a wall. Now, there's going to be plenty of challenges that we're going to see in the coming chapters, but this initial challenge is what's he going to do? This task ahead of him, how is he going to accomplish it? How is he going to go from a cupbearer to a contractor? The wisdom of the Lord had him inspect the project before addressing it with Israel. Before he calls Israel in, as we'll see in verse 17 and 18, he inspects it, he assesses it, he checks it out. He needs to know what is going on. Nehemiah's time spent inspecting the wall wasn't to determine if he could do what God had called him to do, but it was understanding how he would do it. There's a vast difference. He shows up to Jerusalem in faith, believing God has called him, God has provided the way, God has helped him overcome opposition. Well, surely, God, you're going to show me how to build a wall. Surely, God, you're going to give me the skill set and the people needed. He had come in faith believing that God would use him for the task that he had given him. And that is true for us today, that God will always enable us to do what he calls us to do. There are two passages in the New Testament that warrant our attention that echo the same mindset of assessment that we see in Nehemiah. Go with me real quick to Luke chapter 14. In Luke's Gospel 14, verse 28, Jesus talks about inspection, so to speak. He talks to us about counting the cost before we set out. In Luke 14, 28, he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower? Well, let's start in verse 25. Now great crowds had accompanied him and turned and said to them, if anyone, this is Jesus speaking, of course, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. He's talking about discipleship and what it means to follow him. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So it says, if you do not abandon yourself, if you do not empty yourself of you, you cannot be mine. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish. All who see it will begin to mock him, as we see this mocking and derision uh, in Nehemiah, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we see this aspect of even inspection here that Jesus is speaking of. He says, count the cost, take assessment before you follow me because there is a great cost that will come and we go to this passage almost every single week we go to first corinthians chapter 11 in verse 28 as we come to the communion table on a weekly basis this idea of examination paul says starting in verse 27 whoever 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So again, just like not, um, just like not being a disciple of Jesus, this is a huge thing to assess, to examine, to inspect. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so there is this call to inspect one's life, to count the cost before following Christ, to examine yourself as we come to the Lord's table. The truth in Corinthians, the truth in Luke, and the truth in Nehemiah is that before engaging in God's sacred work, we ought to carefully consider the task and not take it lightly. So Nehemiah made these inspections. Nehemiah met oppositions, opposition. And then lastly, Nehemiah gave instruction. Nehemiah gave instruction. As we come to verse 17, so he, he's met this opposition. He's dealt with, so to speak, uh, he's at least already encountered Sanballat and Tobiah. He has inspected the wall to see what's going on and to see how destroyed it was and what it's going to take to rebuild it. Then in verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. So he's speaking to Jerusalem here. He's speaking to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who've come back on these first waves. How Jerusalem lies in ruins and with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that that had been uh, upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah gives out this instruction to build the wall, to rebuild the wall, to restore it. And so after traveling to Jerusalem, meeting opposition and spending time assessing, now he gathers God's people to give clear instruction to what they are to do as God's people. Now notice his tactic, if you will. Notice Nehemiah's tactic. He didn't lean on his role as political leader. He didn't say, the king has sent me, he's given me resources, he's given me his authority, he's given me everything we need, now let us build this wall. He didn't lean on his role as political leader. He didn't lean even at first on his role as spiritual leader. He didn't say, okay, guys, look, God has called me to lead spiritually, um, and so we're going to do this, we're going to build the wall. This is not what he leaned on at first. You see, at first he appeals to the hearts of the people to be moved by Jerusalem's condition. He says, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. So he points to the condition that God's holy city is in. And then he turns to his ability and to his authority. And his ability doesn't come from his own. He knows, and uh, and if people have heard who Nehemiah is, they know that he's been this cupbearer in the king's palace. You don't know how to build a wall. So he doesn't lean on, hey, listen, I'm a, I know how to do what I'm doing, guys. I stayed at the Holiday Inn last night. I can do this. This is not the tactic he takes. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. So as they look at the task that's before them, he starts with, it is God who's going to make this happen. So his ability comes from the Lord. And then he also says of his authority, because this is important for them, that the king has approved this. So his ability comes from the Lord. Now we know that his authority ultimately comes from the king of kings, but he also has this worldly authority that comes from the little king, with the lowercase k. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. 
So guys, we're going to do this. God has called us to do it. He's gathered us to, to, to do this, to rebuild his walls because of the state that Jerusalem is in. But God is going to be the one who makes it happen. And then how do the people respond? Let's think about that. Let's have a, let's have a Jerusalem committee meeting. Let's go meet at what used to be the gate. Let's talk about this. But as he brings their attention to, the, to the, uh, the, uh, the devastated state of the wall, and he says how they're going to do it, what needs to be done, their response is encouraging. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they joined Nehemiah in his assessment of the gates. They joined Nehemiah despite the opposition they would face because they knew they would face opposition. This isn't the first thing they've rebuilt in Jerusalem. So they know these things, but they say, let us rise up and build. And this is exactly what they did. And we're going to see this in the coming weeks as we look at the construction of the wall. And this passage does remind me of yet another passage in the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 13. As we think about building and building what is essential, like these essential walls of Jerusalem. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And it's almost similar to Nehemiah and this kind of, he starts with their, their heart, their kind of their emotions. It's kind of this, this question of engagement. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This essential confession. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood heaven has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So even this confession, to confess Jesus as Lord, to confess him as the Son of God, didn't even come from Simon himself. It was revealed to him by the Father, Jesus says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so we see this picture here of building something far greater than the walls of Jerusalem, of building the kingdom of God itself, building its church. It says, upon you, Peter. Now, it's not Peter the Pope. Just a little, little inside information. Peter was not the first Pope or the second Pope or any Pope. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle of the early church. And it was not Peter's ability. It was not Peter's strength. It was not his savviness. It was not his humility. It was nothing about Peter that Jesus says, I will build my church. It was his confession. And that same confession that Christ still builds his church on, that Christ is the son of the living God. So the walls of Jerusalem were, were rebuilt through the commitment of God's people to restore God's city, and the church was built through the confession of God's people looking in faith to Christ. But the walls were rebuilt. They've already been built once. They're going to be rebuilt again, and they're going to be later torn down again as they find themselves in rubble. 
but the church built by Christ will last forever. So let us be about the Father's business in building His church. Let us proclaim the gospel of Jesus to our neighbors and to the nations. We see that the passage ends going back to the opposition that Nehemiah faces. And we're going to see this opposition continue in chapter 3 and chapter 4 as they build this wall and they rebuild it. So they're going to continue to meet opposition. They're going to continue to look in faith to the Lord. So as we think on this passage this morning, let us remember Nehemiah's account, not as just one of the historical record, but one that belongs in the grand gospel narrative. Just as Nehemiah faced opposition, so will we. Whether the opposition is cultural or individual, we will look to Christ as our great hope and stand firm in our faith in Him. And just like Nehemiah carefully inspected the wall, we too will and should regularly examine ourselves so that we will be reminded that we belong to Christ and that we will recognize any areas of our life that need to be surrendered to Him. And just as Nehemiah was called to build the walls of Jerusalem, we too are invited into a grand building project to participate in building the church and growing the kingdom of God. So as we close, let us remember that our work in the Lord is never in vain. The walls Nehemiah built have long since crumbled, but the church built on the confession of Christ stands eternal. So let us therefore be about our Father's business, building His church and proclaiming the gospel to the neighbors and to the nations. In the words of Nehemiah, let us rise up and build. Let's pray. Lord, we thank